as we've been working through for the last uh, few months this uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, and it is a interesting letter because there's so much. I mean, this church is so dysfunctional. It's why we're calling the, the, the series The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But this church is so dysfunctional. There's so many issues that, that Paul needs to address. Uh, this is a church that he planted himself, that he started it. Now he's, he's moved on to plant other churches, and he's hearing reports back of all the dysfunction that's happening in this church, and a lot of disunity, a lot of just really weird stuff going on. Uh, and so because it's, he's addressing such a dysfunctional church, there's lots of issues of dysfunction that come up, and God has seen fit to bless me with the, the responsibility of teaching through all this dysfunction. <laughs> and so, so this is the, the, the passage that we're going to address today is the one I've been dreading since I felt like I should preach through this. And because it is, uh, for us in 21st century America, it's a passage of Scripture that it, it kind of ruffles our feathers. It, it, it goes against our sensibilities, uh, maybe even of what is right and what is wrong. And, and so, which kind of brings us back to this uh, eternal question for Christians is, how do we live out the teachings of a 2,000-year-old letter? I mean, have you ever really thought about that? I think sometimes we just kind of take this book for granted and we just think like God handed it to us yesterday. But there's... There's years behind this. There's centuries behind this. There's culture and customs that, uh, that we've moved beyond that don't apply to us anymore or, or are at least very foreign to us uh, in, in today's world. And so how do we make sense of being faithful to and living out the teachings of God from a book that is, in, in, the, in the case of the New Testament, about 2,000 years old, in the case of the Old Testament, maybe 3,500 years old with some of those books and so, and then I think it's also the, the challenge of recognizing that it's not a, this is not a book that we're living by, but rather it's a collection of books. It's a library. Uh, you know, you don't read, we don't read the poetry section of the Bible the same way we read the history section of the Bible, just as we wouldn't today with our own literature, right? Um, as you approach different types of literature, you approach it a little bit different. Some, sometimes there's it's meant to be taken literally, and other times it's meant to be, to be uh, metaphorical. And so kind of going through all that and trying to figure all that out. So the passage, before we dive into this, the passages I'm going to deal with today are Paul's teaching about women in the church. <laughs> Welcome to church this morning, right? So uh, we're all going to squirm at the bare minimum. You're going to enjoy watching me squirm. And, and so just kind of dealing with these passages about about women in church and what their roles are and what their roles maybe aren't and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, he, he deals with a teaching in chapter 11, which is where we were scheduled to be today, and he also brings it back up again in chapter 14, uh, and I just couldn't bear to teach it twice, so I'm teaching it out of order and I'm cramming 11 and 14 together. It just so happens that chapters 11 and 14 uh, are a part of a whole. Uh, ch chapters 11 through 14 is him dealing with the issues of what it looks like to worship in a God-honoring and orderly way. And, and so he, he kind of bookends that topic with a couple of teachings about women's roles and all of that, okay? And so that's where we're going to go. Now, before I dive in, let me just say this. This is our issue, this is, I want you to hear that, and I want, it, want you to let it sink in. This is our issue. This was not their issue. It was not Paul's issue. I've heard a lot of people try to paint Paul into this kind of chauvinistic uh, type of attitude or role. This was not Paul's issue. Paul was speaking to the issues of his day, and his audience that received this letter knew exactly what he was talking about, and it did not ruffle them. It was very much in line with the world that they lived in. It was, there was nothing controversial about these comments to the people that received them for the first time. This is our issue. Does that make sense? So, so settle in right there first, okay? And then as we, as we dive into what it says, what's going on, uh, then you know, we'll get into some of that. So it's, it's good stuff. So I'm, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. It's going to be It's going to be great. So before I do that, two weeks ago, I was sick, and very last minute, I was literally 
on, on my way to church. I was showered and dressed and getting ready to head out the door, and then suddenly my stomach turned upside down, and I rapidly called Phil and said, preach, brother, preach. And so, uh, and I pre- really appreciate him doing that, and I appreciate also uh, uh, Brian's message last week was, was fantastic. I really enjoyed hear, hearing from him. That had been scheduled actually for quite a while. Um, and so, but what happened was last, two weeks ago when I was, when I was supposed to preach, I was supposed to hit chapters eight and nine and that didn't happen. And I'm not going to go back and get those. I'm going to, I'm going to briefly summarize it for you this morning. I would encourage you to kind of dig into chapters eight and nine on your own and, and, uh, and, and kind of study that and see what that has to say. But basically chapters eight and nine are Paul talking about this issue of Christian freedom and that how because Christ did what he did, we are, we are free from the bondage of living under the law, that Christ sets us free to kind of live lives in a very freedom-oriented uh, freedom way. But as, I, as we've studied Paul this uh, fall, one of the things that has come out over and over, both in this letter and the letter to Galatians, to Galatians that we've been studying, is that while Paul held freedom high, he held the gospel even higher. And so what would happen oftentimes is Paul would say, yes, you're free to live the lives that that you feel free to live. That's great. However, it's appropriate for you to, in maturity, restrict your own freedom for those who do not yet know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, for instance, this is a great story. The book of of Galatians, uh, his letter to the church at Galatia, that whole book deals relentlessly with the issue of circumcision because some of the old uh, Jewish Christians were going around saying you still had to be circumcised. Basically, you still had to become a Jew, in other words, uh, before you could also be a Christian. They were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Paul says this is inappropriate, it's false, everything else. And he hammers for six chapters in the book of Galatians uh, why this is not appropriate, why it's not necessary, why it is actually, he actually at one point says, those of you who would uh, cling to that issue of circumc- circumcision, you are actually severing yourselves from Christ. He, he goes that far as to say that your, your, your false holiness that you're trying to initiate in your lives and the lives of others is actually making you further and further from Christ, right? And so he really hammers this. Now, so you have this very powerful letter to this church about how circumcision is no longer necessary because God, through Jesus Christ, has made us all one family under the cross, right? And then we also hear of, I believe it's in the book of Acts, where Paul is traveling with his, his traveling companion, Timothy, a young man who he had discipled. And before they went into one particular city and started to reach and, and, and present the gospel there, uh, he knew that their plan was to go into the Jewish synagogues and present it there first. He knew that Timothy was Greek, an uncircumcised Roman citizen. And he knew that they would not welcome him into that synagogue. And so he asked Timothy, would you mind being circumcised so that we'll be free to preach the gospel and so that people will be able to hear about Jesus and this won't be a stumbling block to them? And Timothy miraculously agreed, <laughs> right? It was like, I'm, I'm sure that was a really interesting dinner conversation that they had, right? But, but so, so while Paul would hold it up in a book like Galatians and, and say, freedom, 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 freedom from the law, he would also say, there are times when we restrict our personal freedoms intentionally in maturity for the sake of those who don't know the gospel, we, we want to clear apart any stumbling blocks there may, there may be. And he sums it all up so beautifully in, this, in a couple of verses there in uh, chapter 9. You can put those up on the screen where he says this. <coughs> he says, For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And here, here, here it is. Here's, here's the, the, the bumper sticker verse right here. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And, and, and what I've come to really learn about Paul is this was the way he lived his life in every situation. 
Yes, I've got all this freedom through living in Jesus Christ, through, 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 through my faith in Jesus Christ. But I am so willing to restrict in maturity my own freedom for those who don't yet have that freedom, who, for those who don't yet know Jesus and know the power of his gospel. I'll become all things to all people so that I might win some of them. It's a beautiful, beautiful act of, of uh, humility and maturity. And, he, and, and this statement, all things to all people that I might win some, really guides everything he does in his life and his ministry. It, I, if, I think if you could, just, other than you know, one of his more theological statements about Jesus himself, if you were to distill Paul's practices of living out the gospel into one sentence, it would be this sentence here. I'll become all things to all people that I might win some. And we, we kind of have that, a similar philosophy here at Living Hope, where we, and we kind of put it this way, to reach people no one is reaching, we'll have to do things no one is doing. It's one of our core value statements. To reach people no one is reaching, we'll have to do things no one is doing. Because as a church, we're very passionate about not just drawing people in from other churches, kind of transfer growth, right? That's not what we're really interested in. If that happens and whatever, that's fine. But that's not what we're targeting, who we're targeting. We're not, we're not trying, the other churches are not our competition that we're trying to like draw people in from other churches. That We just don't look at the world that way. However, those people who are outside the gospel completely, that no church is currently reaching. If we're going to reach people that no one is reaching, then we're going to have to try some things that no one is trying. And, and this guides our philosophy and, and the way we live out life through the gospel as a church as well. So we're constantly asking ourselves, you know, are, there some things, are there ways of doing church that nobody has thought of yet? Are there ways of doing church or are there, are there ways of reaching out in our community that nobody's thought of yet that might reach people that no one is reaching? And it's, 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 it's kind of us living out these teachings of Paul, right? Okay, so that's the, that's the five-cent summary of, of chapters eight and nine. Let's dive into uh, what will be my uh, most uncomfortable sermon of the year. Here we go. So let me, before we dive into the scripture, let me give you some background on uh, culturally what was happening in the time that Paul wrote this, because this is critical for your understanding of some of these things he says, because we're going to go into a whole passage about when, when men and women are in church and they're praying or they're prophesying or whatever, should they have their heads covered? Should they have their heads uncovered? We don't think much about this. I mean, when I was a kid, I was told, take your baseball cap off in church, but most of us don't even live by that anymore, right? And, and so that, and Rob should take his hat off in church. No, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. I'm just, I'm just teasing. So, <laughs> totally just teasing. So, um, but, but I didn't, you know, we, that's not, a, there are cultural issues at play in, in, to the people that Paul was writing to, this letter to that just aren't in play 2,000 years later, later, <laughs> later in the letter, right? And so, so let, let, me, let me kind of highlight a few of them. Okay, so the first one is this. Let's look at the first century church. First century church, first thing is this. Get this out of your head when you think of the churches that Paul was writing to. This is not what church, big churches with large steeples and things like that, uh, big cathedrals or, or even little uh, you know, storefront churches like ours. Or what, this is not the context of which Paul was writing to. This is a much more, uh, you know, the, we didn't see, start seeing church buildings for several hundred years after Paul actually wrote this letter. So there were no large gatherings in church buildings in the first century. Churches met usually in larger homes. So typically people had very tiny, very small homes, a place that you could prepare a meal, a place that you could sit around a table and eat, and a place that you could sleep. There wasn't much more than that. But wealthier people did have larger homes, probably actually the size of some of the homes that we all live in, right? And, and, and so a house the size of a lot of our houses would have been, would have been considered the, the, the size of a, a, a person who had some wealth and some, uh, some money back then. And so they would, if there was somebody in the church that had a little bit of larger home, then they would meet in those homes. Again, they were still kind of, everything was kind of on the down low. It was done in secret. They were being persecuted, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so they would just meet in these homes. Uh, in fact, you guys know the Jesus fish that you see on the back of cars? That originated because uh, 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 those house churches would kind of carve that above their door. It was a symbol to let people know that was a, a, a safe place for believers to gather and, and uh, you didn't have to worry about persecution, that sort of thing. Now we just, um, we honk at each other. So, um, so anyway, so, and the churches that met in these larger homes were probably groups of, you know, 25 or fewer. You probably more likely 12 to 20, uh, but if it was a larger 
house with maybe a courtyard in the middle or something like that. You, you might get 25 to 30 in there, something like that. So a meal was always shared. Every time they would gather, they would share a meal together. And generally, the women would provide that meal and, and, and help serve it and help clean up afterwards and, you know, that sort of thing. And so, and then while the atmosphere, because it was in a home, the atmosphere was very casual, there still was some sense of order and liturgy. So there were things that, t- it wasn't just a sit around and, and uh, you know, no order, no, you know, whatever. Instead, you know, they would share that meal together. There were, there, they did things like, uh, uh, like communion. They did things like, uh, there was a time of teaching. There would be songs. There would be um, uh, a time for people to offer a prophecy, which we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, uh, you know, so there was some order. There were some things that would happen, a kind of liturgy that would take place, uh, even though it was in a casual atmosphere. And one of the most revolutionary things about the church in the first century was uh, some, some interesting things started happening with women that had never happened in all that culture really before. And it was this, that women were allowed to pray and prophesy and actually learn alongside of the men. That, that, the church was literally revolutionary in that. That did not happen before. That. In fact, if you go back to, to the first century Jewish world and, and even before the first century, uh, when they would gather in their towns and their, in their town synagogue for teaching and for prayer and that sort of thing, the men would sit up front and then there was a veil behind the men and the women would sit behind the veil. There was a, a, a huge separation between men and women in terms of religious life, and, and that was common pretty much actually throughout the world. It was the church of Jesus Christ that said, no, you guys come up here with us, pray with us, prophesy, give us a word from God, that sort of thing. Also, um, um, learn alongside the men. Generally, formal education was reserved for men, not women, and so you had a, you know, a world of pretty much uneducated women. Uh, unless they learned, unless there was a man that, w- that was kind enough to teach them or whatever, you know, th- it, that was pretty much the state of things. And so here in the church, the teaching would go out, the women were encouraged to learn alongside the men. Revolutionary, revolutionary. Now, when we get into this issue of, of head covering and veiling, v- women's veiling issues, a lot of times we're, we're tempted to think about, in our world, we, we think about uh, the Muslim world and, and you know, uh, burkas and things like that, and and, uh, and so a little bit different than that. That was what they were dealing with in the, in the first century. So put that up there. Uh, first century Greco-Roman uh, veiling. So this is what a woman's hair was seen as sexy in the same way that in today's culture we might view other aspects of a woman's physical form as as very sexy. In that day, if you were to see a woman's hair exposed, it was very uh, appealing, attractive. It was a sexy thing. Uh, and and there, it meant, you know, today women walk around with their hair all out, you know, like, like hussies. And, and so, um, <laughs> anyway, so, so, no, but it was seen, seen as very sexy. So back then, an unveiled woman was typically someone who was either immoral, just kind of a generally immoral person, a prostitute, a prostitute, or a woman who was, was uh, very uh, boldly trying to flaunt her availability. She was trying to communicate in very inappropriate ways. Hey, I'm available and trying to attract a man, you know, that sort of thing, okay? And so a veiled woman, on the other hand, enjoyed the care and protection of either her husband or her father. Uh, that the, the symbol of a veil was not so much about the covering up of the hair as much as it was a symbol of authority, a symbol of submission, that as a young unmarried woman, I'm submitting to the and trusting in the authority of my father who loves me and cares for me and will arrange a, a, a marriage that will be a blessing to me. It was a, it was a joyful, cheerful submission in that most often, okay? And in the same sense uh, for a married woman, to be veiled meant I live under the care and protection of of my husband. I am not on the market. I am not looking for a man. I have no desire or no interest whether you see me as sexy or not. I have a man, and I'm content, and I'm happy, and I submit to that willfully. Okay, so now, again, even that, as beautifully as I tried to explain that, it still ruffles some of our 21st century, you know, sensibilities, right? 
And, and I get that. But again, remind yourself, this is our issue. It was not their issue. Okay? And, so, and then uh, finally, a woman whose head was shaved, because this is going to come up in the passage Paul reads as well. A woman whose shed, head was shaved was typically a disgraced woman. Someone who had been caught in the act of adultery, their head would be shaved kind of as the scarlet letter type of thing. Uh, and, and again, these were um, Roman Empire cultures. We're, we're not talking about church culture at this point. It was the, the church was living in this culture. Does that make sense? All right, so uh, in addition to a disgraced woman, it would also be uh, the heads of uh, women who were slaves would be shaved oftentimes just to kind of, kind of break their will and force them into submission. Uh, you know, so, so typically, you didn't want to be a woman with a shaved head. All right? Now, Paul also addresses the idea of whether men should cover their heads or not, and he does it this, put this next one up here. Uh, there was a, a, an aspect of Roman life uh, back in this time, back in the first century and before, where it was not common for men to cover their heads, not common at all. In fact, it, it would have been seen because of the, the regulations with women and things like that and the, what was expected of women, for a man to cover his head back in this time would have been seen as a little bit effeminate. Unless it was like because of inclement weather or something like that, it, would, it just would have been seen as just a little bit effeminate. And, and, and so men just pretty much didn't do that until, until early in the first century, there was a Caesar by the name of Augustus. And Caesar Augustus, it wasn't good enough for him to communicate to his whole empire that was basically all of that known part of the world at that point. It wasn't good enough for him to communicate to his empire that he was the leader of the empire. He needed to communicate something stronger. And there was one person, one man in all of the Roman Empire, or, or one uh, category of man, that w it was common for them to cover their head. And it was the religious or worship leaders in the pagan temples. As they got up to lead their pagan congregations and their worship of all these uh, false gods and things like that, and weird sacrifices and all kinds of weird rituals, they would bring their toga up, the kind of the part that went over their shoulder, they would bring the toga up over their head. And it, it was a symbol of they were a spiritual authority to be listened to, okay? Caesar Augustus, not being one of those temple officials, needed to communicate to how, um, how complete his power was in the empire. And so he, he did this whole propaganda machine thing where he put statues of himself all across the Roman Empire of right, this right here with his head covered. And what that, what that was him saying was, I am the leader even of religious life in this empire. Not just political life, not just military life. Even your religious life, you should consider me the leader of even that. Now, men up until that point had not been, like I said, they wouldn't, covering their head was not something that they would do. But when all of a sudden Caesar's doing it, and there's statues of him all over the Roman Empire with his head covered, then those in the Roman society that were kind of elitist were like, whoa, if Caesar's doing it, I want to be like Caesar. And so some of them started covering their heads too, right? That's the context for what Paul's getting ready to teach us, okay? So keep all that in mind, all right? You tracking with me so far? All right, here we go. So Paul, in uh, chapter 11, chapter 11, start with verse 2. Let me take a quick drink of water. <clears throat> he says, now I commend you. In other words, I, I, uh, I'm kind of praising your, your behavior here. I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. He's like, he's like the way I taught you to do Christian life and Christian worship, you were, for the most part, you remember them and you do them well, and, and so I commend you for that, right? He says, but I want you to understand. Here we go. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays for, I'm sorry, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. All right. <laughs> Back up. Shake it off. 
Here we go. All right. <laughs> so, so let's look at what, let me kind of, let me kind of unpack this and break, break it down, what's, what's going on here. So he says, I want you to understand, so there's a Greek word being used here uh, that we translate into head, when, and, and it can mean, just as our word head can mean, it can mean a couple of different things. And he is kind of doing a play on words here uh, by using this word. And so in, in one aspect, he refers to the head of man is God, the head of woman is her husband. And then he also uses the same word to talk about covering the head, right? He's doing kind of a play on words. But when we say something like the head of a man is God and the head of a woman is her husband, we think of that in terms of um, authority and control, position. I am over you. I'm the head of you. We, we use the same terminology in talking about who's the head of this company, who's the, you know, whatever, right? In this time, uh, the use of this word was not, uh, would not have equated to that. It would have been more like the, uh, talking about the head of a river, the source of the river. So think of it more in terms of the source of man is God, the source of woman is man. And he's referring back to the issues of, of the creation story, how God created man, woman was created from the rib of man. It's all in the, in the creation story in Genesis 1. He's really referring more to source not authority, although I would say authority is also implied here as well, given the culture that they were in. Typically, if he would have been speaking, uh, using a term that was more about authority, he would have used the uh, term more similar to Lord or Master or something like that. But here he's talking about source. One comes from one and one comes from the other. It's, it's, it's kind of a creation order of things that he's uh, referencing here. So, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head source of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. So th this is a really uh, critical phrase to, to point out here because before, uh, if, you're, if, if you're inclined maybe as a woman or a man for that matter, to, to be offended by the idea that, that he puts some sort of order of man over woman, also look at that last phrase where he says the head of Christ is God. Even Christ submits to something. And the truth of the matter is in life, we all submit to somebody. We're all, there's all, for every one of us, there's somebody in authority over every single one of us. And so keep that in mind. It's not so much a power struggle issue as it is a recognition of the way the world and society works. Does that make sense? Okay. So keep going. He says this. So every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered... Every man who covers his head while he prays and prophesies um, um, dishonors his head. Here's the play on word. He covers his head and dishonors his head. You got it? He covers his head by saying, listen to me, I'm a spiritual authority here in this congregation. And by doing so, he makes worship about himself instead of about God. Does that make sense? All right. Same thing with the woman. Uh, every, uh, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her husband. Uncovered, if, I, if I'm going to be out there as a woman with my head uncovered, basically saying I'm, I'm, I have loose morals and, 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 and flouting convention, and is, she's dishonoring her own husband. She's dishonoring her own husband. But every wife who prays a prophecy, uh, so since it's the same as if her head were shaven, yada, yada, yada. So um, then we go on. Uh, for a man, bottom at the bottom of the passage there, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Okay? In other words, man's job is to, and, 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 and by the way, Genesis teaches us that it's not just men who are created in the image of God. Man and woman were created in the image of God. Okay? But Paul's using this kind of, this kind of, Weird uh, justification based in the creation account to, to, to teach this, this concept. And he says, uh, man is the image of God. Man's job is, in other words, is to reflect and glorify God. Okay? So don't present yourself as some sort of spiritual authority like, look at me and pay attention to every word I have to say. Instead, point to God in everything that you do. And in the same, he says, but woman is the glory of man. And it's not that she's not created in the, in the image of God. It's just that a part of her role is to be a blessing to, the, to, the, to her husband because she is a blessing to her husband. 
as all wives are blessings to their husbands, and hopefully husbands are blessings to their wives as well. So, so it's, he's just kind of trying to, to say, it, it's kind of a roundabout way based in that culture that they were in of him saying, make worship about God and not yourself. Don't use this time of worship together as an opportunity to draw attention to yourself. That's not why we're here. Don't let the church be a meat market either. You know, like, like, like if you're just coming to church to meet a man or you're coming to church just to meet a woman, we're kind of showing up for the wrong reasons. And, you know, and if you're single and you meet somebody, you know, at church, that's great. That's, that's awesome, actually. But that's really, I mean, that's not why you come to worship. We come to worship because we love God and we want to glorify him. And as we talked about earlier, we want to make his name famous. Amen? That's why we do that. That's why we do that. There also, I think, could have been another issue going on here too. Because the church put everybody on a, on a level playing field. There was no Jew or Greek. There was no male or female. There was no slave or free. Everyone was equal under the cross. Everyone was equal, equal in the church in terms of their worship and that sort of thing. Because it put everyone on an equal playing field, you had some uh, societal problems that were happening in the context of the church. So we read that rich people were coming to faith in Christ, but people in political power were coming to faith in Christ, slaves were coming to faith in Christ. And for a slave would not have, a slave woman would not have covered her head. And it could be very well that what was going on here was that some of these women who were coming to faith in Christ and wanted to enjoy the freedom and equality that the church presented, they wanted to cover their heads. They actually wanted to to do something that, that, that showed a symbol of authority and submission and, 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 and um, innocence and everything else. They wanted to do that, and it could be that some of the men were actually saying, no, you're a slave. Don't cover your head. You're stepping outside of, you're stepping outside of, of your station in life. And Paul is here saying, let them cover their heads. Let them cover their heads. So, so a lot of different dynamics potentially going on here. So good stuff. So one more paragraph here. Go ahead. Uh, put that up there. Um, he says this, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So again, that man, man not made from woman, but woman for man. Again, talking about the creation story where God creates a man. Man is looking around the world and he realizes that all these other animals have a, a partner and he has no one and he's lonely or whatever. And, and God uh, you know, puts him into a deep sleep, takes a rib from him and creates woman from that. So he's, again, just referring to the, to the creation story here. It says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority, a covering over her head. And then he says this, because of the angels. I hate those four words because I have no idea what they mean. And nobody does. There's lots of ideas out there. I read, I can't tell you how many commentaries and sources of Bible study and, and all kinds of stuff. On, and everybody had a different, I, there's no consensus at all what this means. It could, it could mean, it could be him referring back to a few chapters ago when he says that we'll even judge the angels. And, and it could be you know, a, a kind of a reference back to that. It, there's some who thought it was because, because we're worshiping God. There, you know, the Bible talks about angels being present in our worship. It could be because of that. It could be that the, the, the Greek word for angel is also the same Greek word for messenger. He could be referring not to angels, but messengers who might be coming in from the church of Jerusalem and you know, not wanting to offend them. And I mean, I have, and so I will just be honest with you and say, I don't know. So if you have an idea, it's as good as anybody else's. All right. So then he says this, nevertheless, in the Lord, and, and when he says in the Lord, he's saying because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, woman is not independent. So, and this is a real reversal of the, of the kind of chauvinistic attitude that some people read into this. He says, uh, in the Lord, because of Jesus, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, you know, going back to the creation story, woman was made from man. He says, yeah, but uh, now pretty much all men are also born of women, right? And he says, and all things are from God. So he's like, he's like, don't get so hung up. It's actually Paul kind of backing off of the chauvinistic thing that a lot of people read into him. He's like, don't get so hung up into this. Yes, you know, woman came from man, but all of us men came from women, and we all come from God, right? So, so don't get so hung up on it. And he says this, uh, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, 
We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So he kind of sums it all up and says, here, if you guys, if you guys want to be argumentative about this issue, I guess, but you're going to stand against every other church who does it the way I'm talking about, right? So it, it was really more an issue of kind of them in their own self-wisdom, in their own self-worship, uh, in their own, you know, putting themselves before God. Paul is trying to get them to go, if you are using the worship time as an opportunity for your agenda, for your own selfish, um, you know, um, pursuits, or for your own um, political statement against whatever was going on in their society, then you're completely missing the point of worship. Keep worship about God. And, and I think it's also important for him, to, important to realize that this teaching is in the context of worship. He's not saying women never under, un- uncover your head. In fact, you know, it was pretty common for women while they were at home. They didn't always have a veil on or whatever. But the problem with that was they were worshiping at home. And so it's he, kind of him going, it's great that you're worshiping in this casual environment, but when it comes to worship, let's, let's tighten things back down so as not to be a distraction, Okay. So that's kind of the point of that. So the, the point I want to draw from that first uh, section there in chapter 11 is this. Even your gender is a gift from God. So praise God in truth and humility. Even, your gen- even our genders are a gift from God. Now, that's a controversial statement in 2017 where, where gender is under attack from all kinds of different places, completely contrary to biology. Um, you know, and so we have a world that that lifts high the concepts of, of science and biology and yet goes against its, that, its own concepts uh, in issues of gender and just being free to be whoever you want to be and yada, yada, you know, whatever. And I would encourage all of us, as I think Paul is encouraging this crowd then, is to say, just be true to who you are. No, you don't have to live by some sort of societal, you know, um, expectations of what a man does and what a woman does or whatever. You know, pursue the interest that God has placed on your heart and pursue it passionately. That's, that's all well and good. But embrace who God has made you to be and praise him for that and see it as the gift that it is. And if society has an issue with the way you live your life out as a man or the way you live your life out as a woman, well, that's on them. But let's be faithful to the God who created us and thank him for the way he created us. And then let's worship him in that truth and in the humility that even there's a humility in kind of submitting to God's created order and going, okay, I'm having some issues with this or whatever else, but, but God, I'm just going to trust you created me perfectly and you know, you know the inside of me in ways I don't even know myself, and so I'll submit to you in that. It's, I think, it's, again, especially in the context of worship, it's just this, it's the ability to go, God is God and I am not. Okay? So then, fast forward. Uh, he, 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 he spends a couple of chapters talking about spiritual gifts and how they should be exercised in church. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. He spends a little bit of time talking about uh, how to properly do communion in church. We're going to talk about that because they were actually fighting over the, <laughs> the wine and the bread. And it's just ridiculous. And so we're going to talk about that uh, first week of December. And, um, but then he bookends this whole section, 11 through 14, with another reference to something about women. So he's talking again here about orderly worship and keeping worship orderly, not chaotic. And he says this in verse 26 of chapter 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, in other words, a song, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue. He's talking about speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about that next week. Or an interpretation, Okay. Interpretation of the tongue, okay? He says, let all things be done for building up. If anyone, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most and each in turn and let someone interpret, okay? And then he says this, but if there's no one to interpret, then let them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God, all right? So he's like, don't go speaking in tongues in, in, in your worship gatherings because if you've got brand new people from outside in the community that are there, you just look drunk. You look crazy, and, and it's not helping the cause of the gospel. If there's someone there who has the gift to be able to interpretate, interpretate, interpret what you're saying, then that's fine. Go do that. But even then, only a couple of you, and do it in an orderly, you know, orderly way one at a time. Then he goes on and he talks about this. He says, but 
um, let two or three prophets speak. So this idea of prophecy is one, it's basically if you feel God has given you a word that would benefit someone else or the, or the, or the congregation. And because they met in these small, smaller home settings, you know, with just a, a dozen or a few dozen people, they could do things that you can't do in a larger gathering. They could kind of be loosey-goosey in the way things happen. And so, so they would just kind of open up to the, to the handful of people that were gathered in that home and say, does anybody have a, a word that God's been laying on your heart that you, you feel like would benefit us? And if, if they did, they would share that word. And men could share that or women could share that as well. And, and so they would share their word. And then there would be people of maybe elders of the church or whatever else, but people who would kind of sit in judgment over that prophecy. In other words, they would weigh it and go, does what I, everything I just heard this person say, does it match up with what we read in scripture? Does it seem consistent with what God would be telling us to do based on what we know of God? And if the case, if that's the case, they would approve that prophecy and recommend it to the congregation. If not, they would say, yeah, I think you had some bad pizza last night because the Bible actually says this, right? So, you know, so it's that sort of thing. I, I, there are some of you in the, in the church that have a, a kind of prophetic gift where God gives you messages and you share them with people, and I think it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, it's, for me, it's been, I consider kind of preaching a form of prophecy, uh, definitely a form of prophecy. Uh, there have been more specific uh, situations in my own life where I have kind of felt a strong word from God. I remember eight years ago, I sat with Phil in his living room and said, Phil, I don't know why, but I feel like God is telling me you need to be a pastor. Eight years ago. And so, so yeah, so that kind of stuff can happen, but you know, you, you can look at that however you want to look at it. So he says this, but again, there are those kind of things can take place in a smaller, like if we try to do it in a bigger setting, it would, it would have a tendency to get really chaotic. And so, so it could happen in a small group, not so much a large building gathering like we do. So let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. In other words, the person, so if, 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 some, if somebody's sitting there, here's your prophecy, and then they feel like because of that they've been given some, something to, then let them respond. You, you stay silent while they respond. If a, um, let the, he says, for you, all, for, you, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. And so, in other words, you can't just get up and spout anything you want to spout and not expect for other people to respond to that. So if you're going to present a prophecy to the church, then you have to also submit to the way, say, the elders feel about that and what they might have to say back to you about that. Okay? So the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this is what we can say for sure about this passage. Silent does not mean never speak. It cannot mean never speak because he's already said, women, when you pray and when you prophesy in the context of the church, right? So it cannot mean women hush, men are talking, right? That's not what it means. And so this thing about women should be silent, it comes right on the, right, the, the verse before that is all about people who are prophesying and people who are offering judgment on those prophecies. And I really think uh, what's happening here is that Paul is saying, um, basically, wives, don't judge your husband's prophecies publicly, because then it begins to feel a little bit like a domestic dispute right in front of everybody. And it dishonors your husband. It's, it's kind of shameful to you and to your husband to kind of do that. And, and then because you have women learning alongside men for the first time, and the, many of them were very uneducated, and, and they're, you know, they're, catching, they're playing a lot of catch-up in all this learning. He's saying, you know, wives, rather than you know, be disruptive in your questions, keep learning, but ask your husband at home. Don't just keep the certain... In other words, the point is keep the service orderly. Keep it orderly. It's not about... Women know your place as much as it is we're in church. Let's keep things orderly and moving along in a way that doesn't get weird and, you know, everything else. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. I know I'm going long here, but let's just be honest. Church can, is weird all by itself. 
without us making it weirder, okay? We do weird things. When was, when was the last time you gathered with other people at, say, work, and, and before your, you know, conference, you, hey, let's all start with a song. <laughs> you would look at your workers like, they have lost their mind. A lot of them start with a song. Are you kidding me? Unless that song is pay me, no, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it, we do weird things in church, and, and Paul's whole, whole concept is, you know, there are people looking on. There are outsiders coming in, just as at Living Hope. Outsiders come in, people who are not yet part of our church come in every single week. Brand new, new people. And in doing that, let's not make things more awkward, more weird than they already are. Let's keep things orderly. Orderly. So don't let these disputes break out. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't do all this kind of stuff. So the big point is this. Go ahead. I'm sorry, there's one more, one more passage he closes off with. He says, uh, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? He's talking to the Corinthians here. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's the big point. That's the big, that's the big thing. So, so the big point I'm going to throw up there is this. Worship should be God-focused, church unifying, selfless, and orderly. That's what worship should look like. Now, some of you, you, you cringe at the idea of orderly because you think we're controlling the spirit out of the service, and you're insane. You're insane. There are entire books of, in fact, read the first five books of the Bible, well, books two through four of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, are all about the order of worship the planning of worship, the preparation of worship. We have no descriptions of actual worship taking place and chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of how to plan and prepare for it and what it should look like. And the Holy Spirit can work through our preparation and through our order as much as he can work through whatever controlled chaos you think you're bringing to the table, right? And so we do that, especially in a larger group setting like this. We get in a home, and there's a dozen of us meeting in a small group. Things are going to be more casual. It's going to be more conversational. It's going to be whatever. That's fine. But even in that, it's like Paul's saying, keep it a little bit orderly, right? So that's kind of where we are. It should be orderly. It should be God-focused, not focused on ourselves. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Now, you can feel free to disagree with me. Um, There are plenty who would. I just think that when you look at the context of what was going on in that society, and you look at the context of what Paul said and in the, and in the context of, of this big passage on orderly worship that he writes it in, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense to me. It's not some weird power play. Again, this is our issue. It was not their issue. Nobody was offended by those words back in that day unless they were just trying to direct worship at themselves and got offended that they couldn't do that anymore. But, but everything he said about women and all that kind of stuff back in this day, 2,000 years ago, nobody looked at the hymn and went, how dare he? That's our issue. And so the challenge for us moving forward is how do we make sense of all of this in our context? How can we? And so I would, I would just say this. When it comes to the role of women in leadership in our church, Living Hope Church, um, the elders have lots of conversations about this. We occasionally address this and, and, and kind of wrestle through with Scripture through it and, and talk it out. And that's, It's something that we're in progress about. As you know, if you've been here very long, uh, we, we try to lift women high here. Uh, there's very few areas of, of leadership that are off limits to women here. We have women in leadership in all areas of church life. Uh, the one exception to that would be elders. We've, we, currently, we feel like the Bible's pretty clear about elders being men in the church, and we feel like there's a theological reason for that that is outside of the purview of this sermon. But, um, but uh, other than that, we, 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 we try to elevate women and lift them high. And, and so I would just say this. If, if you're a woman that, that you have a desire, that God has given you a desire to, to get into his word, to study it, to teach it, uh, to, to, to do whatever... I would say, I would give you the same advice I would give any man who came to me with that same situation, and that is, it's all about humility. It's all about submission. Nobody gets up here and stands up to teach because they feel like they're the best teacher in the world. 
where they feel like they could do it better than anybody else. We submit ourselves to the word. We submit ourselves to the, the authorities in the church, as the Bible directs us to. We submit ourselves to God. We're submissive every step of the way. There's no ounce of pride involved in any of this. In fact, the, even, even in the case of the, of the men that we as a church um, approve to be elders, they are presented to you based on, on their humility, not by how awesome a leader we think they'll be. I don't know if you guys realize that. Now, we, we, we go through a process with them of testing and everything else to see if they'll be a good leader for the church, but they first come to our attention because they were servants first, not leaders. It's all about that. It's about lifting God high, not about lifting ourselves high. And the same should be true of our worship. Amen? All right. And we'll continue to wrestle. It's, it's fine if, if, you, if, if some of this ruffles your feathers. It's fine if you kind of want to wrestle more through it. I would say definitely wrestle more through it. And we'll live it out the, as faithfully as we possibly can. We have to be faithful to this 2,000-year-old document, and we have to be faithful to God, and we have to do it in a way that makes sense to the world that we live in. And that's a lot, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. So pray for us as your leaders that we get it right, and be patient with us if you feel like we're getting it wrong, all right? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word to us today, and we thank you that you are a God who is definitely worthy of our praise. And forgive us if any of us ever are tempted to make worship about ourselves and not about you. God, I, I, I want to lift up to you the worship team this morning who, who gets up here week after week, and they do such an incredible job of leading us to your throne in worship. And, and, I, and, and they're so gifted, and they're so talented. And you've blessed them with that and blessed us with that as well. God, I, but I pray for their spirits and I pray that um, you would uh, also um, just mature them in their faith to the point that they don't have to struggle with pride or conceit or anything in the area of worship. God, to those of us who's, who get up and teach, whether it's uh, here on a Sunday morning or in a small group or in a, a kid's church or a youth group or whatever else, God, God, I pray that you would keep us submitted to you and, uh, and help us to get ourselves out of the way so that your word can ring true and clear. Um, we want to serve you in truth. And we thank you for creating us who you created us to be. I thank you uh, for the godly men and godly women that you have uh, placed in our church, for men and women who seek after you uh, constantly, who dig into your word um, relentlessly, uh, who, who, can, who constantly just want to know more of you and know you better. And God, I pray that you would put that same passion in all of us to know you more than we know you now. So thank you for the opportunity to worship together. And thank you that in you, because of your son, Jesus Christ, and everything that he did, that there is no Jew or Greek, and there is no male or female, and there is no slave or free. There is only one family united at the cross. So we give you praise and glory, and we say just continue to unite us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God is good, amen? All right, everybody shake off the squirmies. Go get your kids. Have a great day.